0: Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing the results from uh, this weekend's presidential elections inside Colombia also going to be talking about the issue of receivership of Boston Public Schools and how, I mean, it's really a takeover and all the different implications there. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. And to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by James Patrick Jordan, National Co-Coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice. James, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, always. And the... Uh a lot of things happening here in Columbia. Very interesting. We're still trying to figure it out.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, James, because uh, just last week uh, we spoke to you while you were in Columbia, where you still are now on the ground. And we were discussing the, the lead up and some of the context to the presidential elections, uh, which actually took place this past weekend. And uh, the election now was set to go to a second round and a face off between uh, Uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez of the Historic Pact, and uh, Rodolfo Hernandez and Marine Castillo of the Anti-Corruption League. Although, you know, it's Kind of funny that they're uh, running on anti-corruption when Hernandez is set to face trial uh, in July on corruption charges, uh, you know, dating back to his time as mayor of the city of uh, Bucaramanga. But be that as it may, uh, James, I mean, reportedly there was a forty-seven percent voter turnout with over eighteen million votes cast, and so uh, I'm 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 curious not only of your analysis of the results and uh, uh, this runoff, but also curious, like, what are the, the the feelings on the ground? What are people saying? You know, how are people sort of uh, uh, operating? Like, what have you been observing in the time since?
1: Well, it's very interesting, and honestly, we're still uh, assessing and kind of figuring out exactly uh, what are the answers to all these questions. But I will say that, first of all, uh, the people who supported Petro are celebrating the victory, uh, this is the most votes any left candidate, center-left candidate, has ever gotten. They won the first round, and that is absolutely something to be celebrated. And, and you know, people are taking their time to be happy about the victory. However, there's also a call of sincere uh, and a, of serious concern, because uh, most of the, most of us, myself included, did not think that Rodolfo uh, Hernandez was going to win this uh, this second place. And that's really, really a, a problematic because his voters, had he come in third, his voters would not have been certain to vote for Pico Gutierrez, the far-right candidate, had he won second place. But uh, since Gutierrez came in second, not too very far, behind, you know, he, uh, one can assume that all his voters will, absolutely none of them are going to turn to Petro. They're all going to uh, support, you know, vote against Petro. So so that's a a concern. And again, you mentioned the 47% turnout, which is, Colombian voter turnout is consistently lower in u.s voter turnout and we have our own problems with voter turnout so there are a lot of people that just feel disaffected don't have faith in in this system and we ourselves uh in our teams witnessed uh irregularities in every team and heard about some and some very serious ones so yeah we're still figuring out uh figuring things out, and for this second round, it's going to be a harder path, but it's not an impossible path, but it will take some real uh, work for Petro and Francia Marcus to pull off the victory. Not impossible, but it's going to be a uh, hard path.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I feel like, James, that this Colombian election is a really important one for the country of Colombia in terms of its trajectory as a nation, uh, particularly following the last uh, few decades of uh, kind of right wing, almost sort of a neoliberal U.S. supported sort of uh, uh, governments, which has seen, you know, serious uh, human rights abuses and the breaking of treaties and and agreements and things like this. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of help contextualize like this election in terms of what it means for Colombia and for the people of that country in terms of what's at stake for this election.
1: Well, let's uh, first of all be clear about one thing. Uh, Hernandez is a I mean, this is a man who uses racist language and has openly expressed his admiration for uh, Adolf Hitler. So <laughs> there's nothing to be so cel- celebrate in him coming in second place and possibly being a next president of Colombia. Still, one thing that we did see from this elections was a wholesale rejection of Uribeismo. Of course, uh, Uribe being the past president of Colombia during one of the most Violent uh, periods of repression and a person who is largely considered to be the father of the paramilitary death squad movement here in uh, in, in Colombia. So it is a rejection of Uribismo and the very deep-seated power and, and in in the oligarchy that he represents. Beyond that, I think what we mainly see is some confusion on the part of many voters who. Uh, voters who wanted to reject Gizmo, perhaps, but were not ready. You know, they bought all the myths and lies that people said about petrol and about the left. So I think it represents some confusion. But what I will say, I think, and I've been saying this again and again, that the real power in Colombia, like right now, lies in the streets, lies in the past, in the mass movements. And I was here for the huge strikes of 2019. Shortly after the strike of 2021, and we were very involved and in touch with people and doing support in the U.S. from that. And, uh, you know, I've been following this for a while, and I just see the people's movement in the streets growing and getting stronger and getting stronger. And that is one thing that I think no matter what happens, no matter what the outcome of this election is going to be, I believe that that people's movement is going to continue and it's going to grow. I mean, sometimes you know, people like will people lose inspiration, lose their hope? In a lot of ways, I think Colombians lost their hope a long time ago. It's not about these romantic notions of of keep hope alive, you know, which we need to do to keep hope alive. But I think a lot of times in Colombia, they're just so back, they're so people are so back up against the wall, so targeted by. Um Of repression that they have no choice to resist, and I think that is going to keep uh happening there's a lot of people feel like they have no choice anymore but but to resist.
0: Yeah, and you know, James, uh, there are some, uh, really no small number of people, that look to Colombia and its role in Latin America as basically an outpost or a beachhead for a U.S. interest in Latin America. And so, w- what is your impression of how Washington has been orienting itself or posturing towards the election in Colombia? Because I imagine that a kind of progressive, uh, left leaning ticket uh, like we see with uh, Petro and Marquez uh, uh, could possibly, you know, pose a threat to those long-standing sort of dynamics that the U.S. has had with different Colombian governments.
1: Well, you know, it, it's interesting because when WOLA, the Washington office on Latin America, uh, published pieces like uh, tying Petro and France, France and Marquez saying that they, you know, were tied to uh, Russian support of the campaign and other people uh, uh, report that, At best, is questionable. Um, The State Department immediately called Francia Marcus to come meet with them when they were in the United States. And uh, they have had a good deal of interactions with the Petro and Francia Marcus campaign because I think they are trying to rein them in. I think they would just assume that they not win, but if they do win, they would like to rein them in, co-opt them do the best of their ability. And of course, the Petro campaign is only a step to win. I mean, he is not himself the revolution that the people on the streets the people we are closest to are looking for. But he's definitely a step, a step away from hegemony, U.S. hegemony, a step towards independence, a step towards more humanistic policies. But it's clear that Should they win, I think we can expect all the every, you know, all the strategies like more funding from the NAD uh, to manipulate and uh, interfere in the process from the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, all all the organs through which the U.S. tries to interfere in the internal democratic processes of another country. We have already seen this has been going on for years in Colombia and we'll see it again, and I think there will also be a very strong push to co-opt. For instance, when Chamorro um, Castro uh, was elected, uh, of course, Kamala Harris, in, in Nicaragua, Kamala Harris went to the um, inauguration immediately afterwards, met with, uh, with, with uh, Castro, because of the concerns about how they were opening things up to deal with China, and then right after the meeting with uh, Harris— Castro said, Well, we're, she didn't say we're not going to open things up more with China, but she said we're going to hold off. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, to co opt and manipulate and deviate uh, the plans that Petro and Marcus have that would be towards uh, independence and towards a more progressive direction. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I really think for us in the, in the people's movements uh, internationally, in the internationalist, And anti imperialist movements, not only in Colombia, but throughout uh, Latin America. And this, uh, this you know, there's been new uh, center left candidates elected in Chile, uh, Honduras, again. There's a resurgence of the center left in Latin America, but there's a heavy effort to co opt it. And I think it is essential that we who are anti imperialists. Around in the United States, throughout the Americas, throughout the world, that we unite together in common struggle more and more against this, uh, the attempts to manipulate, to co-opt by part of the U.S. empire. And that is going on. It certainly will keep going on. And the, the only way to stop it is the people's unity, internationalist unity.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I was hoping you could say more about that, James, in terms of why it's important for anti-imperialists to not only be paying attention to what's happening in Colombia, but to really offer that uh, solidarity and bring light uh, to what's really happening as we see, you know, uh, U.S. imperialism sort of up to its old tricks when it comes to the potential for a government that won't be sufficiently, you know, sycophantic to the U.S. government coming into power.
1: Well, I think... um I really, I guess that what I would like to communicate to to my uh, comrades and people, fellow residents of the United States of America, I'd like to, you know, our people's movement is how important Colombia and the rest of the world is, and how much our uh, how much we need to work together in mutual solidarity. And I don't think there's any clearer illustration than, for instance, the repression we saw. uh, of the national strike in Colombia in 2021 and the repression we saw of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, the militarized police in both uh, countries were based on the same style. The tear gas canisters and rubber bullets made in the USA, the helicopters that were harassing crowds in both countries and in Colombia actually firing on those countries, made in the USA, all that's made in the USA. So there is a revolving door of the tactics of repression that are used against the people in Colombia and used against the people in the United States and around the world. And we are being oppressed internationally by one common enemy. And to defeat this enemy, we have to unite around the world. Otherwise, it's just going to be a shell game. You know, we have a victory here. And then the repression moves over here, and we have a victory there. But we need to have common cause in in bringing things down. And it is so intertwined. I mean, we talk a lot about prison imperialism, about the export of the mass incarceration uh, uh, model, how the U.S. is exporting that model all around the world. And the first place it went was Colombia. And now Colombia is going and training prison personnel, police personnel, and you know, military personnel around the world on behalf of the United States. And the Colombian troops, you know, are going around the world with the U.S. too. So it's really, it's true, Colombia is very much a, a calling of U.S. interests, of neoliberalism, of the Pentagon, and uh, that, its role not only exports uh, repression to other countries, Colombia, they experiment with forms of repression that we bring home. And uh, so it's just so important that we understand how linked our struggle for freedom and independence and peace and justice is, because it is an international struggle, and that's what I think we have to understand to really achieve the victories that we need to get. This is a global struggle.
0: Definitely. And I think it's so important how you mentioned how not only this mass incarceration model, but even how uh, the style of suppressive policing and even the, the weapons and things used in training and all that come from the US, which, which makes me think about this policing institution in Colombia called the ESMOD, which seems like one of the main suppressive policing entities that, that you know, uh, exact a lot of violence against the, the people in movements of Colombia. And so, uh, could you tell us some about the ESMOD and how they kind of to factor into this punitive uh, kind of environment that's been sort of a reality in Colombia for so long?
1: Well, ESMAD, these uh, mobile squadrons, police squadrons, they're riot police basically, they were created as one of the first acts of uh, Plan Colombia, the $12 billion plus dollar uh, aid package that uh, over a period of years, more than 10 years, for supporting the military and security apparatus of Colombia. ESMOD was one of the first creations, and it's very much a militarized police force that's used against the people. ESMOD is mainly focused, focused on suppressing uh, urban protests and also rural protests for people, are like out, uh, fighting, not, you know, struggling for land rights. But ESMOD again, its uh, was co-created, funded, and uh, is advised by the us government. It's uh, you know very much and um, just to give an idea though again, back to the internationalism, the first victim of an Esno killing, I wish I could remember his name right now, but the very first uh, victim of an esno killing was a young man who was in the streets in Colombia protesting against the war in Afghanistan. So, that's a talk about an internationalist connection. There it is for you. And, um, yeah, they, 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 it's just uh, they are a cruel and excessive police force that are pr- precisely uh, focused on quelling the popular movements. And if I could just say, uh, there's a person some people may know about, Delon Cruz, who was killed on the streets of, of Colombia, And I want to say, I, he was killed a block and a half from where I was staying. And uh, when he was killed, I had just come come uh, back from some of the protests in the streets and was back in my hotel room trying to write some things up. And I was on the balcony where I could look out on the streets. And uh, I walked through the crowd. There are people protesting in the streets and it was all peaceful, all without incidents. No, no violence and no vandalism happening. So I walked through that crowd, went up to my hotel room, went out on the balcony and was looking, and I could still see the crowd, uh, peaceful protesting, no problems going on. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing like 15 or 20 police uh, motorcycles with a driver and with somebody on back uh, carrying a weapon, shooting tear gas, rubber bullets, that sort of thing. And I see them writhing in mass, getting off their their, their motorcycles, and they start firing into the crowd, completely unprovoked. And it was in that t- attack that Dylan Cruz was shot point blank, you know, with one of these so-called non-lethal weapons, and uh, went immediately to the hospital and died a few days later. So that is just one of many instances, I think, uh, where I saw S-Not in action, what they're capable of, and I uh, think it's difficult. Sadly, definitely.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, James, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio, Sputnik and Washington DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, as always, great to be on. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Chris, Twitter reportedly uh has had to pay a hundred and fifty million dollars in fines for using two-factor login details for targeted ads. I mean, it seems like there's no private detail that these companies aren't willing to compromise for the sake of ads. But uh, I was hoping you could sort of break this down for us and, and let us know uh, like how did how does this even work in terms of how Twitter, you know, used uh, uh, this information and just uh, how the whole deal breaks down.
2: Yeah, you know, I think if most of us were asked by Twitter when we signed in, say, "Hey, give us our phone, give us your phone number, so we can target you with more ads," and of course they would say it's you know for a better experience, but we all know, I think at this point, it's for targeting with ads. We would say, "No way, Twitter, we're not going to give you our phone number. You already got email. You're already looking at everything that we do on the site, every tweet we like and look at, and." every reply we make. Well, Twitter took advantage of people setting up what's called two-factor authentication. This is where you put your name and password in, and then you get a text message uh, with a special code that only lasts for a certain amount of time. And it's really good to turn that on. It's a very good idea, in fact, to turn that on. And I still recommend that people do that because it helps protect your account if somebody ever gets your password. What Twitter did is they said, "Okay, well, we need your phone number for this," and people said, "Okay, we, that makes sense. We need to, you know, you need to send me the text message." And then Twitter used that information not just to secure accounts with two-factor authentication, but also added that to the profile that they have on you uh, to target you with ads. And the reason that's so important is that if they can use identifiers like phone numbers along with other Uh, information, you know, they can send that information to advertisers, or they can take information from other sources, from other data brokers, uh, and tie that in based on a phone number and target you with more ads that way. So Twitter says this was a mistake. They shouldn't have been doing it. It was going on for about six years, though. Uh, I believe it was 2013 to 2019. And they've just paid a $150 million fine Um, and also say that a couple years ago they stopped this and were able to kind of remove some of that information. Uh, But I think the damage is done. And I think a $150 million fine is pretty much, you know, it's pretty insignificant to to Twitter. It's more of a PR hit than a financial hit uh, because this is a company that had revenue of $5 billion in 2021, uh, even though it doesn't make a profit. Uh, they paid their CEO a million dollars. Um, I mean, it's a really ridiculous, you know, really ridiculous settlement. I think that the settlement should have been much larger, not just to punish Twitter. But also to set an example for other companies that, whether it's accidental or not, uh, especially when you have you know thousands of employees, you have you know you're a multi-billion-dollar company in terms of revenue, you can afford to pay more attention to these kind of privacy things.
0: Yeah, totally. And I always wonder, and I feel like we discuss this often when it comes to the issue of privacy here on uh, Tech for the People, Chris. Is like why these you know massively lucrative and successful corporations just don't want to put in place the proper protection of these things. And I have to wonder: is it an issue of just like you know sheer like negligence or laziness, or is it sort of baked into to the whole structure because, you know, they know that those lack of protections leaves that information vulnerable, which they could possibly turn into a buck, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, what do you think the motivation is for these companies to just not do right, which seems like it would be fairly simple for them to do?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think this, frankly, was just simply a matter of not doing enough due diligence into reviewing the way that the system worked. What they say is that it was, you know, they basically didn't flag that, uh, you know, the if a user had given their information, their phone number, just for two-factor authentication, they didn't check that when matching data sets that had come in from advertisers and data brokers. They said it was, they just, they didn't check to see, okay, should we even match this phone number? Where did it come from? They just matched it anyway. No one thought. We should uh, you know maybe check and make sure that that's working properly. Testing is a common thing when you're rolling out a software update of any kind, um, but they didn't test for this, and whether that was you know somebody at the top saying. Don't bother. Or if it was some just oversight, either way, it really shows the deep integration between these social services that we all rely on for information and entertainment and news um, and the advertising world.
0: Definitely. And I was also looking at this other piece here, Chris, on Wired, where more than 40 Democratic members of Congress actually uh, called on Google to cease collecting uh, location data for their customers that, uh, according to them, could uh, potentially be used by prosecutors to identify women uh, who uh, obtain an abortion, and of course, this is all happening in the aftermath, still, <clears throat> of the uh, leaked draft decision from the Supreme Court that uh, looked to overturn Roe v. Wade, which be uh, you know a historic uh, setback for women in the United States, and and also kicked off massive demonstrations all across the country. Um, so these Democrats wrote a letter back on May 24th, uh, led by Representative Anna Issue of California and Ron Wyden, Oregon, that was sent to Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, that said in part, quote we are concerned that in a world in which abortion could be made illegal Google's current practice of collecting and retaining extensive records of cell phone location data will allow it to become a tool for far-right extremists looking to crack down on people seeking reproductive health care that's because Google stores historical location information about hundreds of millions of smartphone users which it routinely shares with government agencies now without question there is a uh, well documented history of far right elements uh, being violent and even being murderous uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, attacking abortion rights and abortion clinics and things like this. But I- I'm generally curious what you make of this, Chris, because I feel like there's some uh, implications for this even beyond uh, the very serious issue of abortion rights.
2: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I I think it's good that this this issue continues to get attention. But you know, we talked a, a few weeks ago about the fact that uh, other companies are also gathering and selling this information. So I think yeah. pointing out and pointing to Google, I think, is very uh, convenient for these representatives and senators. I think it's you know it's not wrong. Certainly, Google does track massive amounts of location information that. Uh, has and can be subpoenaed by law enforcement. You know, you can, uh, we've seen the geolocation warrants. Now imagine police getting a warrant to find out all of the cell phones that have been within range of a Planned Parenthood uh, or other clinic—I mean, that is terrifying and really not out of the realm of reality. I don't think, given the current situation, especially in many states. So, when we're looking <clears throat> at the fact—and you know, let's remember—the this decision may drop any day now. Um, you know, from what we've seen in the with the you know way the Supreme Court calendar works. But looking at the way that these, you know, that this letter has been presented, it completely ignores the base of the problem, which is that our location data is available for sale, basically to anyone who wants to buy it. You know, there was a story in uh, Motherboard where, where the author bought location data exactly of people who were at a Planned Parenthood clinic for like a hundred and sixty dollars. That's nothing. So if oh. a, you know, if If the right wing wanted to purchase this, if some anti-abortion crusader wanted to purchase this, they absolutely could. And the problem is that there are so many other companies that are tracking and selling and storing this information. So, you know, Google gets headlines. It gets attention, certainly. But the issue is far, far bigger.
0: Yeah, I was hoping you could say more about that, about just how deep this kind of collection goes and the danger that it can put people in in general, but I mean, particularly in these political moments like this.
2: Yeah, sure. So if you can, you know, basically anywhere you go, your cell phone itself is tracking you, and it kind of has to do that the way cell phones work in order to just, you know, connect you to the closest tower. Now, we've established some precedent legally that that information, you know, you have to have a very, very good reason to get that information from your cell phone provider, for law enforcement to do that, from AT&T, Verizon, and all of that. And that was a good ruling a number of years ago. But law enforcement has now been going around that and asking Google, for example, uh, to say, we need a a geofence warrant. We need to know everyone who was in this general area, um, and then we're, you know, at this time, And then we're going to narrow that down and ask you for the specific uh, identities of some of those people who are in that area. And that is perfectly, unfortunately, legal under current law, and that needs to change. Um, We need, you know... Full, fuller rights to defend our privacy. Now, Google is tracking you when you're just using your smartphone, especially if you have an Android. But if you do a Google search, if you do you know use Google Maps, of course, uh, you know use any of their products, they're able to track you. The problem is other apps are doing this too, and apps that you wouldn't necessarily think, because there is there there's software um, that developers can add to their own applications. And you don't see this, but that software, they're called SDKs, software development kits. They help the developers do common things like check for errors and report errors and things. That's all good. But these SDKs often also have code in them that figures out your location, whether it's location services or just your IP address, and then adds that to a data package that is then, you know, know, resold and set up and and all of that and all of the things that we always talk about. So all of these other companies that are doing this and, you know, you're not agreeing necessarily when you open a weather app to have your location information stored and sold. You're just checking the weather. There's also situations where there was a, uh, a Muslim prayer app, and then the U.S. military bought data from that to track people in the Middle East. Mm. Um, you know, really terrifying situations. So it's so much bigger than Google. Google needs the attention, but so do these other companies uh, that are responsible for this.
0: Well, that's a fact. And uh, switching gears a little bit, Chris, I mean, you passed along this story. That's pretty wild to me, even if it's not that surprising. And I'm talking about this uh, recent piece. In the New York Times, it's talking about the digitization of education, which I definitely think particularly in the time since the pandemic has become, you know, increasingly a a reality for students, uh, families and communities, though certainly, you know, that process was happening before the pandemic. But, you know, it sort of centers this story of a teenager in Florida that was basically accused of cheating by an algorithm and some professor or a teacher that she had never even met. So, I mean, what's happening with this story, and what does it sort of reveal about some of the issues with the digitization of education, how algorithms factor into these things, and dynamics like this?
2: Yeah, so here's the setup. This Florida student is uh, at home taking an exam, and part of the exam software requires that your camera be on. And This is supposed to prevent you from cheating, whether, you know, looking at notes, asking somebody for help and and so on and so forth. Well, this software flagged the fact that she looked down for a little while and said she wasn't paying attention to the test. She may have been looking at notes uh, and automatically flagged that uh, and then turned around and said, well, hey, she's cheating. And it was then reviewed by professors uh, and the school who said, yep, well, the software said you're cheating, so you're cheating. Who could possibly sit for minutes at a time staring just at a screen and never even unintentionally, subconsciously... Look down. Uh, I, I think it's un- it's a completely unreasonable expectation, um, and many people over the course, especially of the pandemic, as learning has gone remote, have complained about these things. Um, you know, in particular, uh, autistic people have said, you know, I can't just stare forward, you know, forward, and you know, at the screen. I have to distract myself. I have to pay attention to other things if I'm going to be able to possibly sit and pay attention and work through this test. So when we're looking at these, you know, tests, I mean, it's really punishing to students uh, and also punishing to anyone else that's in the, the home. Um, if you happen to be walking by while a student is taking a test in your home, you're getting caught on camera and recorded, and that video can then be reviewed by anyone else, uh, you know, at the school. They can just look at it and, and see what you're doing. I mean, this the, the entire way that proctoring under under capitalism, especially in the pandemic, has been put forward has not actually helped students. And it has punished students and it has harmed students, you know, in situations like this.
0: Yeah, without question. And, you know, another thing that we're still sort of dealing with as a country, of course, Chris, is this recent spate or slew of mass shootings that we've seen certainly in Buffalo, New York, uh, which was also a racist terror attack, and the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. But I mean, it's being reported that that school district where uh, the shooting took place actually purchased some tech uh, uh, years before the shooting that was supposed to, you know, monitor social media and things like this for, you know, any hint uh, or whatever of a shooting or violence or things like that, that may come across. And there's been a lot of scrutiny, and I think rightfully so, about the response of the police to the shooting and all these sorts of things. And and so could you explain uh, what sort of uh, this, this really means in terms of the fact that they had this tech that, you know, didn't seem to serve them too well in this particular case and, you know, how it all sort of plays out from there?
2: Yeah, it's it's not entirely clear if the school district was still using this software at the time uh, of last week's shooting. So I just want to, you know, be clear about that. But, mm-hmm. you know, even then, you know, there's another example of how students in particular just have their entire right to privacy lost. In the name of safety, whenever there's any kind of tragedy or disaster like this, you know, we see that surveillance and technology and the loss of privacy are often the first steps that are proposed or taken by officials, uh, whether that's law enforcement, politicians, school administrations, and so on. Um, This software can do a couple different things. It can first, it can, you know, monitor specific students. And if you know the students, you know, Facebook, social or Twitter or Instagram accounts, it can actually monitor those. Or it can monitor, you know, social media networks overall to see if there are threats against the school. Well, that sounds like, you know, a decent idea until you Let's we'll just go back to our previous story where somebody was accused of cheating for looking down. Students, young people especially, use social media to vent. They don't understand necessarily the potential consequences of... The words they use, uh, and you know, may just be venting, and that can draw very, you know, particular scrutiny to them and to their families. Um, you know, of course, also interactions with law enforcement uh, can then result out of that, which can completely destroy a, a home, a family, uh, even a community. So these these software packages that do this kind of monitoring have never really been proven to be super effective. Um, I liken it to, you know, how if the police do, you know, solve a crime or prevent a crime from happening, everyone points to that for, you know, months on end whenever, you know, we also point out that the police are, you know, committing crimes and don't actually prevent crime overall um you know so these companies that are selling this software like social sentinel and others often say well look we prevented this many attacks or we referred this many cases or you know whatever statistics they want but of course that's because they want to sell this software to other school districts uh but yeah, we saw no proof in Ovalde and we see very little, you know, very little or very few results anywhere else that this kind of software actually works and that the, you know, that it's worth giving up privacy for.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. And today we're talking about the issue of receivership in Boston schools and the implication that it has for that city's communities. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nino Brown, an elementary school teacher and organizer with Reds and Ed and the Boston Jericho movement. Nino. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Peace, how you doing? Glad to be here.
0: Doing well, Nino, doing well. And, uh, you know, here uh, recently, 150 members of the Boston Teachers Union actually conducted a rally outside of the Massachusetts State House where the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education were meaning uh, to discuss a possible takeover of the Boston Public Schools District by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education or what's called state receivership. And I was hoping you could help us understand, Nino, just what this receivership is. I mean, it seems like it has a lot of implications in terms of race and class, of students and families and communities, which uh, seems to be what was motivating of the teachers who were uh, protesting here. But if you Could just break that whole uh, concept down for us and what are the impacts?
3: Yeah, definitely. So, um, state receivership is essentially where, you know, the state, uh, in in this case, the state of Massachusetts, would intervene in a public school district uh, and take it over, which would mean that teachers, staff could be fired and replaced. Uh, because of what the state has found, you know, to be just substandard education or just essentially, you know, issues ranging from lack of teacher diversity, uh, low test scores, um, unkept buildings. I mean, there's really a, various issues that could motivate, you know, the state to take over public schools. And in our case, uh, in Boston, in 2019, there was an audit that was being put forward by the deputy commissioner, Jeff Riley. And he found that 34 out of 125 schools, uh, they ranked in the lowest 10% in the state's rankings. And the schools that fit that description were mainly black and Latino working class, uh, schools that work in black and Latino working class neighborhoods um, have been systemically underfunded, under supported uh, gutted over the years. I know as a, when I was teaching almost every year that I've taught, there have been some budget cuts. Uh, and despite what the state has, has said, you know, they uh, failed to fund fully fund public schools, creating the conditions that then lead to these abysmal records. And then the state intervenes and says, oh my God, you know, your students are not performing. Well, you didn't provide them with the resources to, or oh my God. You know, your school building is not uh, up to up to standard. Well, where's the funding to bring them up to standard? So they kind of create the conditions to just years of underfunding, uh, and this audit has found that there are all these issues in schools now, and that just prompts them to to take over. It would eliminate local override the mayor, override the city council, override the school committee. And, I mean, it's really dictatorial, uh, but... They do it allegedly in the name of the kids, despite the fact that they did not fund the programs to support students up until this point, which is why they even call for receivership. So it's a, it's a really fraught situation uh, where the state kind of creates the conditions to just take over schools and privatize them, put them into charter schools' hands, or some you know phony public-private relationship. So, in a word, uh, state takeover is. I mean, that's what we call it. It's not receivership. It's really a takeover, a hostile takeover um, by the state.
0: Yeah, I got to say, it does sound terribly undemocratic, uh, uh, like you're saying. And just so I'm clear, I mean, it sounds like if this uh, takeover, this receivership, as they call it, goes through, then no uh, city government institution or anything like that will be able to have really any say-so on what happens in the schools. It will be solely sort of governed by uh, the Massachusetts you know, Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Is that about the long and short of it?
3: Yeah, that's, that's essentially right. Um, Commissioner, you know, Jeff Riley. I mean, I don't even know if you can really, I mean, he plays a commissioner role, but the, the powers that he would exercise would be essentially dictatorial, wow. right? It would be against whatever the teachers' unions say is the schools, communities, uh, and it would just be in the hands of Destiny. Of
0: and the thing about this is, when we talk about receivership, there's a record of just these kinds of takeovers happening elsewhere in the state of Massachusetts, uh, namely uh, districts like South Bridge, Holyoke, and and Lawrence. And, you know, to to say the very least, uh, the record is not exactly pristine. And so what has receivership in Massachusetts school districts looked like uh, elsewhere in the state, Nino? And what do you think that could portend for Boston?
3: I mean, if you look at Lawrence, we have a district that's about 88 percent of the students are classified as low-income uh, I think about 71% of them are classified as English language learners. And just 21% of them scored, you know, meeting expectations on uh, the MCAS math exam in 2021. Uh, and this is a district that's been under Desi receivership for 10 years already. Right? So after 10 years, I mean, according to their own metrics, you know, this really absurd test, test to MCAS, DESE has not improved any conditions for students in Lawrence. If you look at Springfield, which is a state where they, uh, a city where they created this Springfield Empowerment Zone partnership, it sounds fanciful, uh, but according to you know an analysis of nine schools in the Springfield Empowerment Zone, you know seven schools were found to be in the lowest five percent ranking of the state. Right, so I mean, even just those two examples shows that the state has taken over in other cities, has had a decade plus to rectify the conditions that they use to justify their intervention. And they're not doing any better in some cases worse. Right. So uh, the, the track record is, is just really abysmal to say Like uh, I don't, it, it, it's really frustrating, you know, to consider like the gall of, of the state, trying to fix a problem that they have had decades to fix already, have had practice to fix, and they have not fixed it. But yet somehow they feel that taking over Boston Public Schools, which I might add, Boston Public Schools currently outperforms all of the districts that the state has already taken over. So we're already doing better than the schools that they've taken over, in Lawrence, in Springfield, uh, and Springfield, in so, yeah, essentially, just to, to end it there, I mean, uh, the, the track record has not proven them to actually solve any problems, if anything, just maintain the status quo and allow for more, quote-unquote, public-private partnerships, which is really just a Trojan horse for uh, deregulation, union busting, uh, and, you know, the charterization of public schools.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the issue of unions, and it seems like the intervention of the Boston Teachers Union is pretty important here because they're leading this this fight that's sort of you know multi layered and things like this for a fair contract that is I think. Within it, sort of contains a lot of these very same issues that we're discussing, and I feel like you know the teachers as the people who are literally there day in day out with the students and dealing with you know uh, families and parents and things like this. I mean, how do you see the role of the BTU uh, in all of this, Nino, in sort of uh, really a more genuine effort to actually improve Boston Public Schools as opposed to you know this sort of like uh, uh, like hostile thing that. That, uh, this receivership would would sort of signify
3: I mean first off you know shout out to Boston teachers union local 66 um, I mean I think the role that they've been playing is pivotal it's crucial to you know uniting I mean I think teachers stand at the crossroads of this various different communities right uh, working class communities that they serve uh, you know their relationship to the to the city government and the state uh, and you know their they're a union. It's not the second. I think the second or third largest union in the city, uh, and teachers' unions in general in, the, in this country. You know, are one of the bastions of organized labor that's that's left. Uh, so I think they really stand at just a crucial crossroads of different communities. And I think the role that the BTU has been playing has been phenomenal there. Uh, Their recent. I mean, they haven't had a contract in some eight to nine months now or so, and the contract that they're fighting for now is what's, you know, what's called a bargaining for the common good uh, contract. So essentially, the contract is not just the bread and butter demands of wages and benefits, but uh, BTU has carried out community conversations, discussions about what should go in the contract, hearing from the community directly uh, through a series of just holding community discussions, uh, hearing from parents, hearing from students, community members. What should be in the BTU's contract that can not just help teachers, but help the students that you serve? Because, as we say, uh, teaching conditions are learning conditions, right? If your teacher is you know stressed out, overworked, uh, you know doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the support, well, those are the conditions that students are going to be learning in or under. Uh, so with this contract, we've been uh, trying to uh, the BTU has been trying to. I think have successfully done this uh, garner this just generative dialogue that can actually be used to to fight for a broader democratic say in how schools operate. Um, you know, the most recent rally that was held, I think a couple, four, maybe four days ago now, uh, really drew in, you know, just that same layer. I think there's a, a wellspring of support that the VT has been building up, uh, whether it's teachers themselves um, supporters We just uh, published a, an open letter, an open sign-on letter of professors and researchers who are against state takeovers, and you know got a lot of signatures of PhDs and folks who are in higher education and study as, uh, education uh, in colleges and universities. Uh, so what they've done is really try to build a broad front, right, to defend our public schools, uh, all while you know still fighting for their contract because if. If the state does take over, then the contract becomes essentially moot, right? Then whatever the state says goes. There's no real negotiation there. And I think it's about uh, building a united front of all who can be united. It's a very broad front. Even Mayor Michelle Wu, she's against receivership. But she's also the same person that, uh, to win a contract. Uh, so really just showing how deep, the issue was felt that even, you know, city hall, uh, way from city hall to just a block, you know, the blocks in the neighborhood blocks in, in Dorchester and Roxbury, uh, has been able to unite folks against the common takeover.
0: Yeah, and you know, taking a step back and sort of looking at kind of the broader systemic issues that are coursing all through this, Nino, you know, it's 100% clear that there are these racial and class uh, dynamics and implications for this whole uh, uh, receivership piece. But I also feel like we're, we're seeing a kind of example of a consequence of capitalist education, Right. And, and that's an education system that, by and large, is actually not that interested in actually educating young people. But more oftentimes than not, feels like it's, you know, a design to kind of recreate some of the, the exploitative dynamics of the capitalist system itself. And I'm just wondering, as someone who has a lot of experience in the classroom and who sees how all this plays out, I mean, how do you sort of see the way that education is even structured in this country and under this system, sort of impacting the way that uh, uh, education really uh, uh, carries through?
3: I mean, that's a really, I mean first, I mean, I think you're exactly right. In in this country, and this system has never been about pursuing knowledge for, you know, any uh, formative or humanizing reasons. It's been about the reproduction of workers. You know, capitalism produces the type of workers that will acquiesce, not fight the boss, will you know, dot themselves, uh, and what have you. Produce the type of workers who that capitalism needs. And the schools play a pivotal role in essentially trying to just churn out, you know, the type of workers who who, who are needed to work at Amazon, who are needed to work at you know general working-class jobs. Uh, but then also we see schools that, you know, churn out the, you know, future CEOs and, and presidents and governors and political class. Uh, so schools don't necessarily, I mean, they're oftentimes positive as this panacea to the ills of class society, but in reality they just reproduce the same conditions, right? Albeit maybe they're more diverse now and there are some more... Uh, uh, historically marginalized groups that are allowed into, you know, to sit at the table, so to speak. But fundamentally, what we see, at least in Boston, you know, we, we see that Boston is heralded as one of the best districts for education, Massachusetts generally, for having worked in the schools where, I mean, I can think of myself, almost every year that I have taught, I've had, i was teaching fifth grade, I've had at least one student was just almost functionally illiterate. Like, barely could read, barely could write, and this is, you know, supposed to be the best, the creme de la creme of education across the country, and we still have students that are just so severely under, under-resourced, under not supported, and, you know, uh, because of these policies, like No Child Left Behind, we're forced to just push them ahead, and because of these race-to-the-bottom, you know, testing regimes, we are forced to cut uh, I mean, recess. Recess is supposed to be like 45 minutes. It's like 20 minutes now. Uh, there's no more art classes. Everything is just English, math, English, math, English, more more English, more math, uh, so that they can pass these tests that don't, that, I mean, essentially kind of determine the fate of their lives, right? You fill these tests. There are people who are preying on them. I know in some states, uh, the number of prison beds that are created is correlated to the the test these tests that these students are, are not passing because they know where they might end up if they don't you know make it out of these testing regimes or perform in ways that you know the capitalist system wants them to so I mean it's a really sad situation I mean Boston has a huge a long history of just racist education racist practices in education um, you know attacking black children attacking uh, I mean non-white students trying to you know uh, just get an education and, and better themselves. So, I mean, it's really recreating the same type of workers that are needed to maintain the status quo, but also punishment, you know, once we get into higher education and, uh, you know, just the student debt regime and, uh, and that whole thing. But yeah, and I think it's really, it's a factory. It's a factory for reproducing uh, the conditions of capitalism.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's criminal how uh, these young people are underdeveloped, and I'm just so thankful for these teachers and these families and these communities that are organizing to fight back. Well, we thank you so much, Nino, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie Lukman, and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us oh yes we're here we're back top of the hour it is tuesday may 31st 2022 and of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here at the show, because at that time, 320 Eastern, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's 202 1320 our operators are standing by. You can also uh, check us out at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.m-a-v-e.digital. You can also see the show on sputniknews.com/slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And as always, today and every day, we are streaming live on rumble.com/slash C as cat/slash B-A-M-A necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin, an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta and co-founder of Black Power Media. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a while since I got to chat with you guys.
0: Absolutely. And we really appreciate you as always, Kamal. And you know, it's being reported that uh, U.S. President Joseph Biden uh, has vowed to uh, continue to to push and really advocate for uh, gun laws following the uh, tragic uh, shooting at the school in uh, Uvalde, Texas. And uh, Biden spent, according to reports, about four hours this past Sunday visiting with the families of the Uvalde victims and uh, he told reporters that, you know, he intended to be vigilant about, quote, common sense gun legislation. He said, the folks who were victimized, their families, they spent three hours and 40 minutes with me. They waited all that time. Some came two hours early. The pain is palpable. I think a lot of it is necessary. I'm going to continue to push. Uh, and, you know, Kamau, I feel like those of us who sort of follow the pattern really the cycle of what always happens after a mass shooting. I think we all saw this coming. I'm sure you do as well. We're at that part in the cycle where the sitting government, you know, uh, brings about some legislation around gun control that tends to further uh, disarmed, poor, working, and oppressed people and further arms. Uh, The police and uh, uh, institutions like this and the next step will be, you know, if if, you know, this legislation comes to fruition or whatever, whether it's substantive or not, which it typically isn't, you know, it'll be celebrated. Oh, man, I'm so glad they did something. And then we'll move on and just kind of sit in a holding pattern until the next tragedy strikes before we start the whole thing over again. You know what I mean. It, it, it's it's the same old song. It feels like we just had you know a similar conversation about this uh, uh, when you know during the uh, after the Dylan Roof uh, terror attack. You know what I mean. And so I feel like you know the whole issue around gun control in the United States. I feel like is so fraught, and I think to a large extent deeply misunderstood because. There's so much context in terms of the actual impact of a lot of these things that I think gets missed. But I'm generally curious your top line thoughts about uh, uh, Biden's sort of, you know, uh, uh, vowing that he's going to continue to to push for more gun laws and things like this in response to the Uvalde shooting.
4: I, mean, I think I have a similar opinion on the song and dance that's done after these tragic Killing sprees happen, and you know they only really happen here in the United States, uh, which is uh, you know really uh, about the sort of the history and deep to down kind of psychological issues that people have around the use of violence as a way to express themselves. To be honest, uh, as a way to glorify who they are, or in some sort, some way, pinpoint um, for them, some, some sort of, uh, desire to be sort of centered in society is to show people that you have uh, not only a gun, but more guns and that you will use your guns and you'll use them in indiscriminate ways. And in some weird ways, because of the way in which guns are so easily attainable in this society, it's something that, you know, people act on uh, even out of, simple anger. And so instead of walking away from an incident, people always have their guns to turn to to prove, and mainly, you know, men, to prove how manly they are. So I think the song and dance is something that's repeated. Uh, you know, the only uh, editing I might do of, of how you said is that usually nothing is passed. Um, but that uh, the talk, particularly from the Democratic Party, is that they're going to do something to pass, you know, as they term it, common sense gun law, which has to do with expanding background checks. Uh, But there's no real indication anymore, I think, in the last 10, 20 years, that anything will pass whatsoever, particularly around uh, weaponry, which is obviously used simply for killing. And and in that respect, I'm talking about um, AR-15s. It's like these guns, uh, you know, they don't have a hunting purpose, um, but they help people who are, again, indiscriminately, Um, I don't want to say prone to, but who think violence is a solution for some situation that they're in to use violence as a way of acting out. And so I I think that's the sad part that people will continually be killed um, in another month, two months, three months, four months, that this is not something that's going to end and that there's no real solutions on the table to deal with
0: it yeah definitely. and you know your comments sparked the thought in me, Kamal, about how, as it pertains to <clears throat> uh, gun laws in this country, how it often plays out, i i I, I kind of feel like it's part of an effort of the state to protect its monopoly on violence. You know what I mean, in the sense that, yeah, when these tragedies strike because of all these other deep uh, uh, issues wrought from a uh, uh, capitalist culture and all these sorts of things. Yeah, they'll come and make a big show uh, of sympathy and all of that, but they never address the root cause because to fundamentally change the root cause would change uh, uh, the state's ability to wield violence as a bludgeon against the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people. And so the, the subtext of that is, is that the state and These uh, officials, these representatives of uh, different wings of the ruling class that runs this government, that would mean that they are 100 percent okay with uh, people in this country being victimized by these terrorists. However, often it happens as long as they get to maintain uh, uh, the control over force and violence in society. You know what I mean? Because that's that's very important in uh, this capitalist state. Oh, go ahead. Come
4: on. Oh, no, really quick. I'm so sorry. I I was going to say that's what makes me so conflicted about the issue. I am one of those people who I do, I think, in a civilized society, and I don't consider the society we lived in to be civilized, but I think in a civilized society, the amount of armament, so in a society that was truly democratic or had a way in which people could solve issues, problems, be engaged in in their own lives, and deciding how resources are distributed and just taking a real role in how society works— In a society like that, um, whether there were access to guns or not, I I think you would see people deal with uh, issues, problems, just so much differently. But instead, I think the state can can continue to allow indiscriminate violence. I I think that the, the state doesn't even care whether or not it has a monopoly on it or not, I think for indiscriminate violence, the answer is we are the, we are the chief operators of organized violence. And so we will take that indiscriminate violence and use it as a platform or a way to imprison people or to scare people into thinking that they need more of us to stop them. Uh, but what they will never allow is an organized resistance movement to emerge uh, that has the potential to use weapons against them. To be honest, uh, and so if we remember back in the in the late '60s, with the Panthers marching on the Capitol in California, because then Governor of California Ronald Reagan helped introduce what was called the Mumford Act to restrict the ownership of guns based at that time on the fact that the Panthers were then uh, watching the police with arms which were legal to carry um, to stop them from brutalizing black people. So when it was an opportunity for people, an opportunity for the state to take away people's gun rights who were operating in an organized fashion which was oppositional to the government's oppression, they acted really fast to attempt to take guns away from people. Um, Outside of that, um, uh, those those time periods, the state has been, become more and more lax around it because they see it as a cultural weapon, particularly to organize a right-wing base. Because, you know, remember, it hasn't even been that's, uh, 15 years, if I'm not mistaken, that the uh, official Supreme Court understanding of the Constitution is that the right to bear arms is constitutional. Before uh, a few years ago, the Supreme Court never went as far uh, in suggesting that the Second Amendment was actually an amendment around the carry the uh, the constitutional right around handgun uh, ownership. And now it is clearly defined as such, and clearly uses it as a wedge issue to suggest to its right-wing followers, um, that their guns are sacrosanct and that they can keep them. Uh, But again, as long as they're not organized to do anything that's uh, going to overthrow, like you said, the ruling class, it's a non-issue for people in this country.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's funny you mentioned um, about how you don't consider uh, this to be a civilized society. I quite agree. I mean, I remember uh, Jamil Alamine some some decades back, uh, you know, he said America is the only country that went from barbarism to decadence, without civilization in in between. And I think there's actually a direct connection to that reality and this uh, broader issue of mass shootings and these uh, terror attacks. We often talk here on the show, Kamau, about the rot that has set in in the United States, this incredible social decay that's becoming more and more apparent as the capitalist system itself, I think, begins to crumble more, more and more. And see, when you understand how this is a fundamentally uh, violent society, a society that was born, it was birthed in violence and bloodshed and genocide and slavery. I mean, just the worst offenses against humanity uh, took place in order for the country that became the United States to exist. Now, it likes to either, you know, you know, pretend that it didn't happen or either acknowledge that it happened and say that, well, it was actually good uh, one way or the other. But when we it's it's no uh, coincidence, then that when we fast forward to the 21st century, that, you know, the wealthiest nation on Earth, the one that tells the rest of the world that it's the, quote unquote, greatest nation on Earth, the world's only imperialist superpower, mind you, is the only country where mass shootings are this regular of an occurrence. I think the first big one of my lifetime was uh, a Columbine shooting back in uh, 1999. You know what I mean? And it just feels like from there, it's just sort of escalated and even more so here lately. But when we talk about uh, sort of the state, if you will, the capitalist state not addressing the root causes, I mean, at the end of the day, it is this capitalist system that breeds this violence. Because when you live under a system that is based on exploitation, that is based on oppression, that is based on just, you know, crushing the humanity out of uh, 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 people, it it creates the conditions that I think are ripe for this kind of antisocial behavior. And so if we see that It's this system and the exploitation inherent to the system that's really fueling the violence. Well, then the natural conclusion is that that system that's fueling violence must then be removed and replaced. And so in truth, uh, this violence that I think defines American society is an inherent part of capitalism. These things are inextricably linked. And so in truth, to critically address it, Uh, really, I think, would be a threat to the system itself and the class that benefits from that system. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah,
4: I mean, I I think you you nailed it on the head, which is why when I hear calls around, uh, uh, obviously, like uh, folks make calls of abolish the police or defund the police. You know, which in theory, yes, I agree with and that's a, it's, a, it's a mechanism or a tactic for a larger struggle. But there are also folks who truly believe that they're going to be able to defund and or abolish and or decolonize the police uh, and still leave the capitalist state uh, intact. And, you know, my reaction usually when it comes to that kind of conversation is the capitalist state has police for a reason. They're not about to defund, abolish or decolonize. The armed forces of the state that they use to protect the resources that they continuously steal from everybody else in the country. Um, And so, like you said, the use of organized violence, um, it's something that will be well protected both domestically and internationally, as we've seen over and over again. The United States has a bigger body count than uh, uh, probably any nation, state in the history of the world um, in terms of how many people that's actually responsible for going. Out and invading and attacking um, and 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 murdering during that time period, whether or not through direct of frontal assaults or whether or not through sanctions. Uh, As we saw in Iraq, where over 500,000 children were killed because of sanctions alone. Uh, And that's been a a repeated target of how America's foreign policy operates and then how American domestic policy operates, particularly towards black and brown people. So, it's yeah, the use of violence or or violence in society, you know, it's only talked about in these... uh, really this, this uh, strained ways when it, it's the indiscriminate violence that happens that no one can predict or give some justification for, which, of course, is terrible for people who are the order receiving end of that violence. But that same concern is not given to the organized violence of the state, which every day takes more lives than all the indiscriminate killings added up together. Um, and again, if you look at the state through not only the use of police, but, through the social systems that they've created, which allow high, 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 high infant uh, mortality, uh, the lack of health care, the lack of health uh, health insurance to your job, uh, the unemployment rate, the labor conditions, all these things add up to premature and sudden death for this population, and none of that gets dealt with and will not get dealt with as long as there's a class that's accumulating wealth while that's happening.
0: Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned um, this issue of defund the police. I was just talking with a friend yesterday uh, uh, about this and just how, you know, there was this all out ruling class smear campaign against uh, uh, defund the police. That was, I think, largely successful in convincing a lot of people in the uh, U.S. that defund the police was a bad slogan or a bad concept or it 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 wasn't clear. I mean, I don't you know, a, a slogan I don't think is, is necessarily equipped to uh, encapsulate the entirety of an idea of a, a movement. I mean, that's what actual movement work is about. And I mean, also, I feel like I should point out because I think a lot of people felt like the language kind of left itself open to be co-opted. I mean, I'm of the opinion that there's no such thing as as a slogan that can't be co-opted. I mean, if Nixon can co-opt a, a black power, well then I, I don't think any concept really uh uh stands a chance. You know what I mean? And so and we have to ask ourselves, well why was that necessary? Why did the ruling class have to go out of its way to convince this country that taking money from the police and putting it into things that actually help people is a bad idea. Well, it's necessary because of how crucial and central the police are as an institution to the maintenance of the capitalist state. These are the armed bodies of the capitalist state and the ruling class, and they are in place to serve their interest and to protect their property. And so to uh, take away even some portion of their lifeblood, their money and and resources and things like that could be seen uh, uh, as a threat to that effort. You you know what I mean? And I think, you know, to me, I think it sort of shows how potent the idea actually is and uh, not not only the idea, but the movement that that produced it. In that way and and so it, it's always it always seems like uh, you know the ruling class has to you know uh, basically put out its own propaganda about these ideas which, which by the way if people remember these notions of you know defunding the police abolishing the police and all this and that um, these were ideas that were popular amongst uh, organizers and activists like people in the movement until George Floyd happened. And then these ideas became mainstream. It was no longer just something that was talked amongst, you know, a small group of radicals. So I I just feel like there's a real fear on the part of the ruling class for these kinds of ideas that really fundamentally challenge these institutions. There's a fear that that will take root and spread and become a part of the popular consciousness. And therefore, an all out attack had to be waged against it.
4: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Because I think even though, as, as I term it, people who actually sincerely believe in the concept have to also believe that it will not happen unless a revolutionary movement or radical movements are, are on the ground making right. an, an an actual challenge to 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 capitalism. Um, and I think without that, of course, there were leopard slogans. But I completely agree that the the post to George Floyd's uh, murder the amount of people that were out in the streets basically beginning the call or, or popularizing the call and challenging the really basic function of the police was, at a moment, an important historical moment that began to arise. Um, and so even with my own conclusion around, of course, it's not going to happen until you do ABC, the slogan itself and or the idea of self to start to permeate in society and give people the bright idea that Let's start tinkering with this. Let's start thinking about what we can do to uh, disarm the police or change their use in our in our communities was considered particularly acutely dangerous to the ruling class and the management class of the state, which is why they did go on the all out front, all out frontal assault on the theme. And they backed off of their own liberal rhetoric around Black Lives Matter. All of a sudden, the narrative of uh, they weren't just the saying police lives matter, but the, but the bluntness of changing the narrative from uh, police bad to we need the police happened within a six- to seven-month period uh, where the, the idea of rising crime, that more police were, were necessary, that the police were getting a bad, uh, a bad sort of PR campaign against them, that we need the police to the point where we are now where, you know, Joe Biden, uh, the moderate savior of of the Democrats, you know, uh, with to standing applause by both Democrats and Republicans are, you know, saying that, you know, we don't need to defund the police. We need to fund them more. So it's right there in front of all of our faces that the ruling class is not about to defund the police and just bringing it all the way back to Uh, the recent mass shootings, even when they obviously fail at their own job of supposedly doing something to stop violence from taking place, uh, as we had in this last shooting where they waited outside for well over an hour and didn't engage or act whatsoever. So it goes to show, like, you know, for the most part, the police take notes and they make reports, but they don't solve and or stop what would be considered crime or criminal activity. Um, and so they're not the solution to that either. Uh, and there's many other solutions and many other things that we could do if we're so concerned about people's behavior to give people the opportunity, again, to have resources and a say in their lives and what happens around their lives. Uh, there's nothing more than people being involved in their surroundings and their environment and having actual use of power to put forth, the, uh, for, for the, be able to put forth uh, ideas and energy. To make people engaged in how society is supposed to work um, and instead of doing that we disempower people um, and tell them that their life choices are about working for some capitalist corporation um, watching the Kardashians on TV and purchasing items uh, that we tell you to purchase otherwise they really don't have any impact uh, or should have no role in how society is run maybe every four years to pick one of the people that we tell you to pick and uh, terms of who gets to manage the country for the next four years for that particular ruling class
0: definitely and i mean look you mentioned the kardashians i mean i I love trash tv as much as the next cat but i mean while watching them that's that's just like cruel and unusual punishment but we're gonna move to our first break of the hour on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary back to so By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 025211320. That's 2 0-2-5-2-1-3-2-0. I continue to be joined by Kamal Franklin. And shout out to the, uh, by any means, necessary chat, keeping it live, keeping it going. Uh, Nawadi says, cishet men are targeted with messaging that violence is a legitimate way to solve any problem. I think that's very, very true. And I think that it's it's a deep part of the socialization of of men uh, in this country and in this culture. And I'm glad this was brought up because I feel like the... There's a narrative about these uh, mass shootings that want to boil the the whole thing down to uh, you know toxic masculinity, and here's the thing: there is a real critical materialist sort of analysis to be made about the role of a, a patriarchy on an institutional and interpersonal level. And misogyny at those same level as well that I think absolutely uh, impact these uh, sorts of things the these ideas of manhood and machismo and things like that. But those other conversations to me that they they sort of boil all of that down to just like catchphrases and buzzwords. And you don't really, I think, get a good idea of how these broader uh, uh, systemic realities um, impact these kinds of behaviors. And Big Teal One says, uh, I don't know, Sean, the imperialists haven't co-opted anti-capitalism. <laughs> I mean, you know, the funny thing about that, though, and I'm thinking specifically of like the academy and the nonprofit industrial complex. So to me, in, in place of an overt and explicit anti-capitalist political line, what we get instead is, is radical liberalism, where people have the same old uh, liberal politics and the same old liberal analysis on things, except they just take it and they wrap it. And all these radical sounding words to let you know that they're really down. You know what I mean? It can be pretty goofy. And if you play your cards right, you can make a tidy living uh, doing just that. But, you know, swinging back to our conversation, Kamal, because we uh, uh, and I mean, certainly if you have any thoughts on that, you can comment. But we ended off before we went to the break talking about the police and uh, and and their involvement in, in these shootings and their behavior. And a lot of people understandably so. Uh, I think have been critiquing and asking uh, serious questions about what the police in Uvalde, you know, were, were, were doing and why not only in the case of Uvalde, but it seems like every time there's like a mass shooting at a school or something like that, the, we don't see the police as these, you know, heroic crusading champions uh, that they're made out to be in our uh, uh, minds. You know what I mean? And so I feel like just that image alone, the more people see that, even that I think is kind of a challenge to what we're told the role of police are in the United States. And as it pertains specifically to the issues of gun laws and rights to self-defense and mass shootings and things like that, we get this concept of, you know, the good guy with the gun. The good guy who's going to with a gun who's going to run into the building and shoot the bad guy with the gun before he hurts anybody. Well, you know, it's funny. That cat never seems to show up. You know what I'm saying? And so it's uh, it's it's something that I think really reveals. The nature and character of this police institution that we're told is invaluable and indispensable in this uh, uh, society, but I think it's similar to what we were discussing in terms of defund the police, is because it's all out of an effort to ultimately protect the police so that they can continue in their duties to the capitalist state. And so, you know, I'm definitely curious how how you think about that, Kamal, because I really feel like the, you know, to say the very least, you know, the police, their slip is hanging. I feel like the mask has really, uh, come off in, in the way here. And I'm not saying it's going to have some drastic earth shattering effect, but I do feel that people are taking notice.
4: Yeah. I, I, I feel similar, you know, and then I feel the state responds by giving us more propaganda, uh, which will begin to make us look at the police through the eyes of, um, again, it was one bad incident uh, one bad apple, uh, not in this particular case, but the bad apple uh thematic always is pulled out. um they'll find somewhere some cop to hold up as heroic um and who did something good or saved someone. so there's gonna to be ways in which they counter the narrative and uh and and make sure again that we are put back into a box of thinking that the police are the answer to issues, really issues of people being disinfected by society or feeling outside of society uh, or being oppressed by that society. Um, and the answer is usually to lock them up. So I think even though there's a com- comeuppance that's happening right now amongst the police behavior and lack thereof of any heroic gesture to save children, as of, I believe really one of the stories that came out was it was a mother who was desperately trying to get in. She was actually handcuffed, and she got out of the handcuffs, got into the building, got her kids out of the building, while the police were still standing there. Um, and so the heroicism of, of, of in the lives of her own children, uh, because she wasn't just watching to see what would happen next. Um, and so I, I, you know, so I, I think this is so tainted with the idea that police, all the all the. Uh, The people who are going to solve our problems, um, that that until we are, again, we we get somehow past that through organizing, through creating alternative systems, through pushing the police out, through creating platforms where power can be exercised, where the community can not only make demands, but actually exercise power so that they don't have to make demands on the bourgeois state, Uh, but they are creating their own institutions that can actually give mutual aid or resource distribution and the police become an anomaly to that. It doesn't mean they won't get attacked, right? Because anytime, you try to create a model, the police are called in to talk about how those folks are dangerous for creating that motto And then those same cops who wouldn't rush in uh, to save children will definitely be called to rush in to kill, murder, maim, and arrest uh, organizers uh, who try to create something in the alternative.
0: Definitely. We've got a caller on the line here. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind.
5: Hi, Sean. Hi, Kamal. Hey there. Um... I just want to say, Kamau, I love you on the Remix Morning Show uh, on Black Power Media. I watch it every morning. And um, just to get to my topic, so I want to take a very hard pivot. I'm not sure if you guys saw, but today, earlier today, uh, BTS, the very famous uh, K-pop oh, yeah. group from South Korea, was actually at the White House press t- uh, um, today. And they were speaking out allegedly against, uh, A- I guess, racism against Asian and Pacific Island uh, communities, and and I wonder to what extent this is part of like Biden's trip around Asia because he was also in South Korea. I know Kamal was talking about narratives around uh, policing and guns. So I was wondering, what do you think the White House or the Biden administration? is up to, or what kind of narrative are they spinning to, I guess, deal with this issue of this community experiencing racism and what, and also the anti-China kind of policies that they're having. It seems like it's coalescing uh, here. So that's what I wanted to ask. Thank you.
0: Cool. Thanks a lot, Tamara. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Well, I hope you heard that, Kamau. Uh, People really enjoy you on Black Power Media. Uh, You should probably cease all attempts to replace me on by any means necessary. I I know you think I don't know about it, but I I be knowing. But (laughs) your thoughts on our caller.
4: Well, I I appreciate the callers. Um, uh, Well wishes and and saying that they enjoyed hearing me on on the remix morning. Sure, I really do. Uh, But, I I mean, I I think talking about her particular topic area, I mean, obviously I think even as the United States and its Western allies are circling the wagon to – um, um, to try to, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, contain Russia in some ways, or to surround Russia in some ways, we all know that the ultimate objective of the United States, when it comes um, to its now its 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 foreign policy is the containment and surrounding of China uh, and to isolate China actually from the rest of Asia in some ways to make China the boogeyman of Asia and the threat to Asian existence. And I think it will use everything in its sort of wheelhouse or toolkit to do that. So obviously everyone should be and hopefully everyone is against anti-Asian violence. But we also know that when Biden and or his, his His uh, Secretary of State or others take trips to Asia these days. um, They obviously are are doing so in an attempt to rally Asian countries uh, to treat China as if it's an outsider in Asia in the treaty of the United States as, this, as if be to, as a Western nation, as if it's somehow the savior and protector of Asia. And this is all within the concept of Western imperialism trying to hold or keep hold of its grasp or resources, people, and land around the world um, and to keep capitalism flowing and to stop any ideas or rhetoric or or... Or economic systems, right? That counter the cap the capitalist ethos um, of how a world should be organized. And it's not to say that I think the um, China system is the is the acute model that we need to follow, um, but. China does operate differently in terms of having state enterprises, um, resources to, to those state enterprises, and using that to help further give resources to its larger population. So it's a model to look at in view, which is out, somewhat outside, sometimes some differentiation between the, pure, the more pure capitalist model which the United States and Western Europe uses. Uh, and it de- never minded a, a nation like uh, China participating in capitalism, as long as it participated in its assigned place, which means as a place where people can have, where, where uh, Chinese workers for low pay could uh, make, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, make the production of low-end items uh, to suit the larger capitalist world. But the moment China started entering a larger technology field and area, creating larger businesses and trying to get into areas that the United States and Western Europe decided was there was for only them uh, was all this animus now directed towards
0: China. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, I mean, number one, as folks may be uh, aware, as we talked about it here on the show, I mean, recently, um, because BTS is a is a South Korean group. And, uh, you know, South Korea not long ago elected this cat, uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, as president, who's like a straight up reactionary. You know, I don't I don't know how else to really um, uh, uh, describe him. And it's just interesting to me how. The Biden White House would invite BTS, this this K-pop band who's really the only it's the only K-pop band I ever heard of. I I know, you know, K-pop is a big thing for some folks. It's not my bag, but I have heard at least of BTS. They seem to be one of, if not the most popular of uh, those bands. And so the Biden White House brings in this South Korean boy band. while at the same time, still leveling these uh, devastating and deadly sanctions against the DPRK in North Korea. And all these sorts of things. So, in other words, the U.S. is perfectly fine with violence against uh, Asians if it's in service to imperialism. Whether it's in North Korea or China or Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia or what have you. Let me tell you something about the United States. It loves violence against Asian people. It loves it. Mm -hmm. The the Chinese Exclusion Act, is that not violence against uh, uh, Asian people? And so this is, to me, just another uh, point of... Uh, imperialist uh, uh hypocrisy and you know this whole thing with bts i mean they seem like a nice enough group of lads but i mean it just feels like a pretty transparent uh uh pr sort of deal that i think sort of really obscures a lot of the deeper realities both around how racist violence is playing out in the united states and how it connects to imperialism abroad because this is what uh the the this capitalist ruling class this this state certainly the uh uh corporate owned media platforms this is what they refuse to acknowledge they refuse to acknowledge that u.s imperialism directly exacerbates anti-asian violence in the united states you want to know the wild part about it it's happened before with the uh with the japanese internment camps right And so this new sort of yellow peril, uh, new Cold War reality that uh, the U.S. finds itself in as it tries to stop the peaceful rise uh, of Russia, excuse me, the peaceful rise of China, which it can't seem to be able to do, uh, while at the same time, of course, uh, encircling and trying to contain uh, Russia through NATO. And if people notice, because we've been pointing this out on the show, the U.S. government is more and more explicitly trying to bring China into the, the 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 Ukraine war narrative vis-a-vis Taiwan, right? And I'm not going to get too deep off into that, but suffice to say, Kamal, that this all just seems to obscure the 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 reality. I mean, it's just to me, it's darkly ironic that the country that is responsible for this anti uh, uh, Asian violence. Is you know uh, claiming to be a champion, you know what I'm saying, and, and and a part of the vanguard to fight it, but here again, these uh this this political theater that we're seeing is what we're given instead of real solutions.
4: And I was going to say really quickly that even this latest round of anti Asian violence is born out of. Uh, the propaganda that happened within the United States around how COVID got started um, and blaming uh, China for, and suggesting that it was a, a weapon that was released to the world or, or Trump calling it the sort of Hong Kong flu and, and and those kind of remarks is the very thing that began to release this even current wave of violence against anti-Asians was directly related to the government and further directly related to the anti-immigration stance that Republicans openly take and that the Democrats um, basically allow and to placate to uh, through their immigration policies and their, um, uh, their, their reactions to immigration in this country. And so uh, the fact that the larger U.S. citizenry um, reacts with these anti-Asian violence and anti-everybody violence um, is a lot of ways due to the fact that it's the government itself is on the one hand saying, hey, please don't do that, but on the other is giving enormous cues around how it's okay to target people and consider them others um, because it fits into a narrative of you saying you're protecting the country from outsiders. So this very violence is something that the government itself is, per- is, is uh, uh, perpetrating uh, in terms of its own policies and the cues that it gives, to, particularly to its larger white uh, citizenry, around the proper use of violence uh, um, and or the ways in which others can be treated.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. Welcome back. So by any means necessary you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. I'm your host Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luckman. and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202-521-1320. That's two. 2521 one, two, I am here. Kamal Franklin is here as we continue. And you know, Kamal, this is a bit of an aside, but you know, I really appreciated uh a post that you made on uh Twitter yesterday for Memorial Day, Federal Holiday. But you posted uh, you know, that you you were remembering George Jackson on this day, who who you describe as being killed by behind enemy lines. And I tend to think that's quite true. And, you know, it's I swear ever since Juneteenth became a federal holiday about a year ago, if memory serves. I've been thinking a lot about holidays in the United States and about how a lot of them originated with the real deep, explicit political and historical substance to it that was subsequently completely removed and it becomes just another day off to 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 bust out the grill. Now, of course, I'm never mad at somebody busting out the grill. I hope you invite me. But Memorial Day also, you know, uh, uh, is an example of this. And we know it began as Decoration Day, basically a day to, you know, celebrate black Civil War soldiers, which of course made all the difference in uh, the union's uh, victory in the Civil War. I would go so far as to say that the Civil War took on a revolutionary character when the black soldiers got involved of their own volition, mind you, because, you know, Abraham Lincoln was waffling on the subject. His vice president was trying to get him, was trying to convince him to let black men serve other elements. But, you know, the brothers took it upon themselves. You see what I mean, but today when we think about Memorial Day, it's it's just it's just boiled down to like you know appreciating those that served. It's just completely sort of a political thing, and the truth is, and your George Jackson post speaks to this. When we talk about the Black liberation struggle, you know we have our own uh, uh, veterans and and prisoners of war and and political prisoners and things like this that are still very much a reality and that aren't just a part of a history, but you know, is a living, breathing issue happening right now. I mean, we still have people that um, have been locked up for so many years. I mean, we celebrate Sundiata Akoli being released here uh, recently. Uh, And I also saw a post from uh, Kalanji Changa, also of, uh, you know, Black Power Media and the uh, Renegade Culture Podcast and things like that, was, um, you know, making a post about uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur, Uh, who reportedly is in hospice care with a stage four cancer, according to Kalanji's uh, post here, with federal authorities refusing to release him to his family. And so this is the, the fundamental cruelty of this system that will not only exploit you, but will also rob you of your history so that you don't even know that these holidays and things like that are like actually about you and what you need to to continue to be doing. And what I'm saying about Memorial Day, we could say the same thing about Labor Day, you know, Veterans Day, all these sorts of things. You know what I'm saying? Presidents Day, for that matter. I got some presidents that I like. Ain't none of them was in this country. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's it seems like, you know, these holidays, these observances popular in a popular sense, either, you know, just become these apolitical days off or, you know, like a a capitalist cash grab, like, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day and stuff like that. These greeting card holidays, we can call them that. You know what I mean? Ain't nothing wrong with letting your mama or your dad know that you appreciate them. But I think a lot of us, you know, kind of see it for what it is. There's a reason why we feel like Christmas comes so soon after Thanksgiving and things like this. And I feel like I'm sounding kind of conspiratorial, like they're like. (laughs) But I just feel like it's is real in terms of the uh, orientation of uh, these these days that we observe in this country. You know what I mean? And so the fact that. Memorial Day is something that originated in a struggle to end slavery, to end bondage, to end this uh, treatment of human beings like property, uh, and the fact that that's not even known today, Kamal. I just don't think it's an accident.
4: Either right? I think usually these holidays, even if they have uh, radical beginnings, like you know the st- the state's efforts at first. Are to recapture them and to give them much more benign, uh, much more benign understanding and a much more patriotic understanding. Um, and then soon, when they've served their purpose, they're safely allowed to be places like you said, where folks get the day off and they look at it as an opportunity—a good opportunity, obviously—to spend time with their family and not to be at their jobs. But it's rooted in the understanding. That the state has decided already through its various mechanisms and means, and uh, it's it's uh, it's enterprising capitalist partners, of course, that these holidays are to be used for getting people to purchase more stuff. Um, and so, when you look at some of the things that have happened around Juneteenth, as you mentioned, with the uh, the the new holiday that was established last year. Um, you know, now ice creams are being uh, brought out before that are Juneteenth ice creams that Walmart had to pull back. I just can't imagine the the um, the, the, the room where the, the the smart corporate heads were putting their, putting their ideas on the tables and saying, like you know what would be good? what would go over well? a Juneteenth ice cream. They would love it. And then they had another ice cream. It was pride. So that's supposed to be related to the LGBTQ struggle. Um, and so the co-optation of these things for profit is the standard fare. And sometimes they do them well, and sometimes they don't do them well. I've seen going to Walmart, red, black, and green napkins for...
0: <laughs> quid line, though.
4: Oh, uh, red, black, and green uh, disc plates for Juneteenth. <laughs> so there is no boundaries. So what they will Uh, For them, it's all about whether or not we're going to accept it. And over time, with enough propaganda, with enough resources thrown at it, with enough celebrities who endorse it, usually they get their way, right? Not always, but usually they get their way. And that's what encourages to keep on going with this mess.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's wild what uh, a consumption based society does to the psyche of a people. And it's this really sick thing where in this country, in this culture and under this system, we're taught that consumption is a solution in and of itself. That if there's a problem, all we got to do is uh, buy enough stuff or watch a certain thing or listen to a certain thing. It's always something that's pretty... uh, low lift, if you will, something that doesn't really obligate you to anything, certainly never anything organized. But somehow you going to, uh, you know, spend money on something or buying something or getting more stuff is supposed to solve uh, this or that problem. But of course, all that really does is uh, continue to uh, substantiate and validate uh, uh, the capitalist system because it's just funneling more money into the pockets of the uh, the the wealthy elite. And this is what I think we got to understand, Kamal, when we talk about what it means to really uh, organize in a grassroots sense. In um, a moment like this. And one thing that uh, I did, I wanted to mention before we got out of here today, because, of course, before the Uvalde shooting, it was the racist terror attack shooting in Buffalo, New York. And it just so happens that today is the 101st anniversary of another infamous racist terror attack, uh, the Tulsa Massacre which took place on May 31st, 1921. And I want to read just a quick blurb from, um, the Zen education project on this. It says from May 31st through June 1st, deputized whites. Now pick up on that deputized, not the police deputized whites killed more than 300 African Americans. They looted and burned to the ground 40 square blocks of 1,265 African-American homes, including hospitals, schools and churches and destroyed 150 businesses. White deputies and members of the National Guard arrested and detained 6,000 black Tulsans who were released only upon being vouched for by a white employer or other white citizen. 9,000 African-Americans were left homeless and lived in tents well into the winter of 1921. And I mean, there's just so much there. And when we talk about how history gets misconstrued and skewed and things like this, I think it's unfortunate about how the story of the Tulsa massacre and the popular imagination of black Americans basically boils down to like a black buying power sort of argument. Isn't it tragic that all these black businesses got destroyed? Well, well, yeah, sure. But I, I don't think that that's sort of the the real uh, root of it. Now, of course, we know it's true that there is a history of racist violence against, you know, successful black businesses and things like that. But that's based in um, a kind of uh, uh, racism and a kind of a white supremacy all its own, in my opinion. But to me, uh, what we're, this was like a, an example of mass vigilante violence. I mean, even if a group is technically deputized to do this, that or the third, this is vigilante violence. And I think an example of how vigilantes and police terror have historically worked a uh, uh, hand in glove. And so when we talk about Tulsa today, I think we understandably kind of get caught up in the incredible violence because it is incredible. But I kind of think the lessons we draw from it, Kamal. are are could maybe uh, do with some sharpening, if you will. I think this is where political education comes in, because when we talk about this, I think this is a great example of why and how we should really study that history that you were speaking to earlier about how the Panthers and other folks organized uh, against fascism and often did so quite successfully. So in the last few minutes, you know, I'm just wondering how you sort of see that and how political education in a moment like this can be so important in our organizing.
4: Yeah, I think it's extremely important because otherwise we begin to believe other people's narratives and in some ways create narratives that serve the purposes, again, of a capitalist uh, or a class of people, and whether or not that's a black capitalist class of people or white capitalist class of people. The idea that somehow capitalism in and of itself, no matter whose hands it in, is somehow going to free us from oppression um, as, uh, as, as you talked about earlier, again, with uh, Richard Nixon co-opting the black power slogan and making it uh, for him and the people that he could get to surround him, trying to make it into a pro-capitalist slogan, a slogan that meant black power was all about black business as opposed to black power being about black liberation. Being about being able to control the economics, the education, the the security, the safety, um, this is the, the the social welfare being able to control those things in a collective way that, again, gives power to people in the community so that they are involved in the community and how resources should be distributed as opposed to having masters who do that for us. Um, So I think with the uh, improper way in which these stories are are either given to us or repackaged to us, they begin to create these alternative narratives that, again, lead us right back into believing that somehow capitalism is is our savior or will be the device in which we liberate ourselves out of, as opposed to capitalism is the problem in and of itself. And those who serve its interests, whether or not they're deputized or ideologically they're disconnected to thinking that that capitalism is is something that benefits them along with the racism instilled particularly within, within white America, continually lead to a dangerous, violent society, and so ending on us talking about mass violence um, in terms of this society. Uh, you know, Tulsa is a prime example of a mass violence that consumes this country, even to this day. Um, that that has not left and will not leave until we think of alternatives to what society should be like, and we fight for those alternatives. Really, fight for them.
0: Absolutely. Big shout out to two F's in the by any means necessary chat who says being a consumer, you can never feel that you can never fill that hole that only grows deeper the more you consume. I mean, that is just so on point. Because you can't substitute spirit for stuff. Well, we're gonna end it there today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy Can Watch Tennessee. We want to thank Kamal Franklin so much for joining us today. We'll be back from all, all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.